All right, so, of course, we don't know the exact way that all this went down, right? I mean, we've got it in the Word here. We know it's true because it's in the Bible. But the picture of the room and all of where this took place, we don't know exactly how that went down. But I want you just to picture in your mind a minute. I I have a kind of a story in my mind of how I think it probably went down, okay? And I I don't know about you all, but I'm a visual learner. I like word pictures. I like visuals. And those things, as my wife will testify, have gotten us in trouble some as... Uh, is as we've asked the Lord to show us some things and then weird things. Anyway, that's a whole other story. But I like word pictures. Okay, so imagine here we are. We're we're in Antioch. <clears throat> we walk in. We're 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 just sitting in the corner. We'll say in a large room, dimly lit with the flickering olive oil lamps nestled in the tiny groves of the walls or the grooves of the walls. Two tables have been set. On one side of the room over there, Peter sits with his Jewish Christian friends speaking their native language. They open their meal in their traditional Hebrew prayers. They they perform their ceremonial Jewish hand washing. Then they proceed to fellowship around the table. All the while, the Pharisees, a small contingent of them, are standing around, dressed to the hilt in their flowing religious garb. Remember how Shane explained that last week? And he, Shane was talking about the things that go on their foreheads, right? You remember what those are called? The phylacteries is that, and the tassels, you know. And and when we were in Israel in 2017, I um, uh, was kind of when we went to the Wailing Wall, and I and all these kind of guys were there. I thought, why are they all wearing GoPros? <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what it looked like, you know. That dude's got a new GoPro on his head, you know. But that's what they are. And, and I'll never forget that when you're facing the wailing wall like this, the women are on the right, the men on the left, and then there's a room off to the left that was kind of, it was covered, but the front was open. <clears throat> and there was this massive library in there. And uh, there were tables. There weren't any sitting, but it was standing tables. And there were all these men in there with the curls and the thing, the leather on their arms and the things on their heads. And they were, I, I planted myself over in the corner just to watch. There was a, a bar mitzvah thing going on down that way. It was a good-sized room. I mean, there were probably 30 or 40 people in there. And there were guys at their tables with these massively thick books. You know, like I said, this whole wall was books, like a library-looking thing. And and they were they had their books, and they I saw they would be looking around like this. And as soon as somebody looked at them, they were down and 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 flipping the pages. I mean, they were just putting on a show, right? And that that's kind of what goes on. So just imagine these guys there like that, dressed to the hilt. But they're they're looking dis, disdainfully at this simple group of Gentile believers over here <clears throat> that they've pushed into the corner, which, by the way, Peter was hanging with them yesterday, right? And, and the message from the Jewish party is clear. They're sending a signal that if you want to sit at our table, you're going to have to live like us, right? Otherwise, to the corner you go, right? Paul enters the room. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he quickly sizes up. <clears throat> Sorry about that. 
No, I'm good. Thank you. Uh, sizes up the situation. And he looks at the Jews and then at the Gentiles and then back at the Jews again. And it doesn't take him long to realize this is completely a, a completely different picture, as I said, from the day before. Right, Verse 12 uh, said, Before certain men came from the Jews, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came... He, he drew, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So he's scared of the Jews. He goes and hangs with them. Just yesterday, right, he was with them, laughing together, talking with them, in Greek too, no doubt, right? And now the scene has completely changed. And Peter, uh, unfortunately, had inspired the believers um, to the Jewish believers to separate as well, right? But now Paul doesn't see a, a, a united church like he did the day before. Now there's a separate church, one for the Jews, one for the Gentiles. And, and it's almost as though a spell has been cast over the entire room because remember what we looked at last week? Even Barnabas, of all people, went to their side, right? He switched allegiances. Now, I can just imagine Paul, you know, gathering his composure a little bit, probably wanting to intimidate to some degree, slowly striding across the room over to the group of Gentiles, and and, and probably they're kind of probably freaking out because, oh no, here he comes, right? And, and from the Jewish table, the circumcision party, I'm sure they were glaring at him because of, of his impropriety. Right? They had managed to build a wall of separation between them and the Gentiles, hoping to persuade them by their exclusion to embrace the Jewish Christian way of life. So, But instead of sitting with the Gentiles, he's over there with them now, he probably, you know, to get their attention over there, starts banging on the table and um, points his finger right at Peter and calls out above all the murmurs, Verse 14, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And again, as I said, of course, we don't know exactly how that went down, but I think it's probably close to that, right? There was no jovial toast to welcome the Jerusalem guest to Antioch. Paul proceeded to inflict a flat-out verbal whipping on the revered uh, apostle Peter who had literally turned his back on the Gentile believers. So his mini-lecture, interestingly, uh, is kind of a condensed version of the whole book of Romans. Heavy on grace, hard on the law, and centered on the atoning death of Christ. So the account of his words to Peter run from verse 14 through verse 21. So if somebody would read those again now, 14 to 21. All right, thank you. Now, one commentator said this about this passage. Listen, he said, It is fascinating to see God's omnipotent, omniscient hand take the failure of Peter to stand firm on the truth of the gospel and to use Peter's failure as the launching pad into one of the greatest sections of all of Scripture on the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. God uses in this text a negative event, and works it for good. Isn't that a biblical principle? A negative thing, God takes it and works it for good, right? Who else could do something like that other than God? 
And to magnify the importance of this text, John MacArthur said, Paul really takes off in Galatians 2, 15 to 21, which could be studied and studied and studied and perhaps never plumbed, for it is very difficult to untangle what he is saying. I mean, this is a mountain of biblical truth in this small portion of Scripture here. In this little section, we're introduced to some of the most tremendous terms that Paul has ever uttered in his in his life. For example, we run into the term pistis, the Greek word for faith, which becomes such a prominent word in the vocabulary of Paul. Just think of all the times I didn't do a word count search, but all of the times the Apostle Paul would use that word faith. Then we run into another word, nomos, nomos, which translates law, another prominent word in Paul's vocabulary. But above and beyond those two words, we run into another one that becomes a cardinal word, not only in Christianity, but in Paul's mind and his heart and his writing, and that, of course, is the word justification, right? MacArthur says about this, and I believe this, that no one understands Christianity who does not understand justification. He continues, now, you may not understand what that term means, but you have got to understand the concept or you can never understand Christianity or be saved. Think about that, right? So why is that? Why do you think somebody needs to really understand what justification is, and that's where we're going to get into a lot of reading today, and I apologize for that, as I said. But what? why is that so important, right? Again, not that someone has to be able to uh, uh, explain the substitutionary atonement of Christ in the way that I or you might do it, but they do need to understand what this word really means. Why is that why would Paul go to such lengths? Why would MacArthur say something like that? What do you think? Pardon? Because we sin daily, right? Because we could all go right now. I don't know how many of us are in here. But let's say that, you know, half of y'all go to the outlet mall this afternoon. The other half go to Walmart. And just because we live in Georgia... You could walk around and ask people, do you, do you know Jesus, right? Do you believe in Jesus? And and I think we'd get, well, today, maybe not. I could make that statement 10 years ago, and we could probably say be 100% people to say, yeah. Does that mean they're saved, right? I mean, John 3.16 says, you know, whoever believes, right? So what do you think, you know? I, I think, the, and as we're going to see, hopefully, we're going to see, the magnitude of this word justification and what it really means. Because it's really what drives you and I every day when we get up in the morning, if you think about it, what drives us to want to be the child of God that he desires us to be. So the verb form of justification appears three times in verse 16, one time in verse 17, and the noun form, righteousness, same word, that's the noun form, is translated righteousness, uh, is in Galatians uh, 2.21. So this word is used five times in these verses. 
So there's your key word, right? If you're doing an inductive Bible study, that's the key word right there. And we see this great doctrine of justification by faith alone is introduced in the context of, of Paul's rebuke to Peter. You know, we wonder, why is he chewing him out so bad? Well, he's using the opportunity to, to introduce this wonderful doctrine, right? He, and he's rebuking Peter. Why? Because Peter's doing what? He's, he's violating, right, the cardinal doctrine of Christianity, which we're saying is this justification. Peter's condoning legalism, right? He's, and, he's, and he's condoning this faith, uh, I'm sorry, this, yeah, this faith works system. So Paul, in effect, is saying this in verse 14. He, he's saying, Peter, listen, I, I'm not just asking you a question uh, in verse 14, I'm going to tell you why I'm posing the question to you. And the why, of course, is based on the doctrine of justification. Martin Luther said this, If the article of justification be once lost, then all Christian doctrine is lost. I read uh, back in November a uh, biography on, uh, a new biography on Martin Luther and and, and I, I was blown away again of the struggle. You know, Chris Chris taught us in one of the earlier lessons, Chris Brackett in, in our class here, about, you know, it's hard for us to understand how big of a deal this really was back then, right? But it was that big of a deal again when Martin Luther was around. You know, we just take it lightly. Oh, yeah, you know, no big deal for us today. But I'm telling you, you know, think of what the, the state of Christianity was when Luther, this was a huge deal for him. He feared his life. People were coming after him to kill him because he believed in the doctrine of justification the way we do rather than the Catholic way. So it's a big deal. So with that said, we got to know what this is. And now we'll get to the slides and y'all get to read some. Let's see. I'm new at this kind of stuff. So, am I doing it right? Play from start, right? All right. Is it up there? So, this is from, uh, they they don't, for some reason that one feeds itself in. The rest of them don't do like that. I don't think. When I get asked to preach, Joel does my slides for me. I don't do this, so... If they don't fit up there, bear with me. Um, so this is from a commentator, uh, William Hendrickson, on uh, on justification. So somebody read that one. Yeah. <laughs> All right, justification stands over and against condemnation. So what's the key here? What is Hendrickson saying here? It's an act of God. It's an act of God. But wait a minute. What about being circumcised? What the Jews were saying. Does that fit that? No. Wait a minute. What about I got to go to church to 
perform my duty. Does that fit that? Right? It doesn't, does it? That strips every bit of works out of this. And then he Hendrickson goes on and has a little bit to say about... Uh, um, Why is it jumping? Um, did it change? Well, we're doing something wrong. Oh, is it? Okay. Just a lag there. So, same thing? Okay. I didn't even tap anything. Okay, so just to get an idea of what the difference with sanctification, somebody read that slide. God may be a truly justified person who wants to be without death. I mean, think of the truths of this, right? Look what he says, adopts him as his son, right? Not only does he impute his righteousness unto us, but he adopts us as his son, right? And, and, and then, this, you know, have you ever wondered... I think this statement proclaiming this truth of justification is the definition for my heart, my mind, of why I desire to please God with my life, right? Because you remember what Paul taught, and he'll he'll teach it again, and next week we'll see in the next verses we'll look at in this text, but probably the more famous one that everybody knows is the end of Romans 5 and the beginning of Romans 6, you know, if grace abounds... You know, when we sin, why not just sin more? Well, th- this is kind of the reason why, right? When you realize out of gratitude, this justified person through the enabling power of the Spirit begins to fight against his sins and to abound in good works to the glory of his judge, Father. That's, why, that's what motivates us, right? This gratitude. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Why, what makes you today wake up and want to please God rather than yourself. Now, granted, sometimes we do the self thing. We do. I mean, there's no way around. But what motivates you to want today to be pleasing to your Father rather than yourself? Where does that come from? You know, I I always wanted what Tim wants. You know, I mean, it's a battle for me to, to deny myself. So, <clears throat> that is, a, I think, a gift of God, is it not? I mean, what does that in us? That's the Spirit convicting us. I remember when I was saved, um, again, I've told you all, I came from a dark, dark place. <clears throat> and, um, and, and, and the guy that led me to Christ, and it was like uh, on a Monday, and um, he came back, he committed to disciple my wife and I, and he came back the following Tuesday. And I remember standing, as clear as I'm standing here right now, I remember standing on my back deck, smoking a cigarette, talking to him. And he'd come over for our discipleship session. And he said, well, how's your week been? I said, man, it's been the weirdest thing in the world. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, last week, before you came over, and, and, I, and I accepted Christ as my Savior. Prior to that, I used God's name in vain maybe, you know, six times in 60 seconds. And he said, yeah. And I said, this week I did it six times. The fact that I know it was six times in a whole week is weird. <coughs> and he, he started laughing, you know, and I'm still talking. And, 
And I said, it was like every time I did it, somebody thrust a knife into my stomach. It was painful. It hurt me. I said, what is going on? And he's just laughing. He said, I think you got the Holy Ghost. You know? And I said, I got something. I don't know what it is. But, you know, what made that happen? What in the world was that? It wasn't me, right? That's part of God putting his righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, accounted unto my account and then the, the gift of the Spirit indwelling me. Right, so then now let's look at the basis of this justification. So somebody read that one. <clears throat> as already implied in the definition, justification as a judicial act of God rests not on human works, not even on faith as the work of man, but solely on God's sovereign grace in Jesus Christ. It is his accomplished mediatorial work that furnishes the legal basis upon which man's justification becomes both possible and actual. Christ fully satisfied the demands of God's law. He both paid our debt, also rendered the obedience which we owe. All right, so again, think about Martin Luther and realizing this truth. I mean, this was earth-shattering to him, earth-shattering to Paul. And, and that's why he's coming down so hard on Peter. Now, there are innumerable parallel passages in our, of this text this morning. And I think we would be amiss if we didn't look at some of them. So, I don't have these on the slides, but let's look at a few of them. I, I think it just, this is such a foundational doctrine to our faith that we've got to have this really ingrained in our heart. So, um, let's look first at, at Romans 1, 16 and 17. Remember, the noun form of this word is righteous, righteousness. The verb is justified, justification. So some of these texts may have uh, the, the noun in it. So somebody read Romans 1, 16 and 17. I did at least put these in sequential order, so you'll be going one direction. I mean, isn't it? Can't you just see Paul's? You know, this the Galatians was written before this, but can't you just see his his uh, his maturity as he's moving forward in his understanding of this truth? And now he's writing this in Romans. Okay, now Romans nine uh, thirty to ten four. All right, now Galatians three twenty three to twenty seven. So you can see we're going to be in this for a while because Paul continues, and even in Galatians 3. <clears throat> All right, now Ephesians 2, 1 through 13. <clears throat> One thing I looked at came up with 147 parallels to this. It's a big deal. Makes you wonder what the Catholics do with their Bible, Right? Yeah, my 93-year-old mom this morning, she's Catholic, goes over there. She asked me last night to crank her car this morning and get the frost off of it. I went down at 8 and did that. And uh, when Kit and I went to leave at about 8.30, she was up getting her tea and all. And I told her, we looked outside and it was 5 when we got up. 
And I said, well, it's gone up to seven. And she said, oh, boy, maybe I shouldn't go. And I said, well, Mother, if I was 93, I wouldn't be going either. I said, I think God understands. Why don't you just go back to bed, say a couple prayers, and be done with it, you know. Um, But in her mind, she's got to get over there, right, because it's this works thing. But I think she's decided to stay, but it is an extreme struggle for her to not go. I mean, it is for me, too, to come and worship as well, but she's not going for that purpose. She's going to... um, fulfill her uh, duty to the church. All right. Somebody got Ephesians 2, 1 to 13? All right. That's good. Thanks. So one more, Titus 3, 4 through 7. All right. Great. Thank you. So you get the idea. Now, here is a brief definition of justification. Justification is the good news that sinful men, sinful women can be brought into the acceptance of God, not because of their works, but simply through faith in Jesus Christ. All right? Simply through faith in Jesus Christ. So the bottom line is that sinners like us are declared righteous, justified by God through faith in Christ, not by keeping the law. In fact, it's even impossible for the law to save anybody even the most righteous, law-loving Jew. Now, uh, I came across another quote we're going to read here from a guy named James Buchanan, and this is not the 15th president of the United States. All right, this is James Buchanan, who was a preacher and a theological writer uh, in the early 1800s. He studied at the University of Glasgow, and he said this, and I just love this. This sealed it for me. Somebody read that. Isn't that good? When you realize that you are condemned in the sight of God, right, then your conscience is impressed with that that idea. That is how you can best understand this doctrine of justification. And he continues, Buchanan continues. Somebody read that one. If I could have that printed on the back side of my eyeballs where I saw that all the time, that would be life-changing for me, right? I mean, when we realize that this deep conviction of sin is the one thing that is needful, right? And, and of the, the guilt of sin, past as well as present, as an offense against God, which, now listen to that next statement, which once committed can never cease to be true of us individually. Now, I tried this morning to find where I read it, and I couldn't find it. I ran out of time. Somewhere this week, and I don't know where, I read a statement very similar to that. What he's saying here is we committed sin, right? I mean, just think of the last one you did. Or, or think of one maybe pre-Christ, before you were saved. And, and, and you, we, at least I, maybe you all don't, I have this idea that, when, when I've been forgiven, you know, and it's been as cast as far as the east to the west, right? It's been covered by the blood of Jesus and all of those things. But it, that doesn't mean that it's not true. It doesn't cease from being true that I did do it, right? We think, oh, we just got, no. I mean, think about that. That should, at least it does for me, it drives me back 
to this tremendous gratitude of, gosh, God could call that thing back up like that, right? I mean, I'm guilty, right? There's no question about it. No lawyer got me off. No defense was made. I was guilty. The gavel went down, and yet I'm still forgiven. Doesn't make me not guilty, right? That's profound to me, right? So again, this definition of justification is the good news. That's it, right? That sinful men and women can be brought into the acceptance of God, not because of their works, but simply through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, with that understanding of justification, we can see why Paul had such a problem with what Peter was doing. Now we can get into the text for today. Um, we got 15 minutes. So, verse 15. I'll read 15 through 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet... We know that a person is not justified by works of the law through faith in Jesus Christ, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, but because, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So Paul reviews the same gospel that Peter and Barnabas and the others had already affirmed prior. We saw that, and that's why, remember, they gave him the right hand of fellowship in in chapter 2, verse 9. They were mutually supporting each other. They were on the same page. Everything was fine, right? And he says here in verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Who is Paul referring to when he says we? Yeah, everybody there that was Jewish, not the Gentiles. He's making a point here, right? So this is emphatic, which means what? Why is Paul emphasizing this? That's right. Yeah, he's trying to show the contrast between these two groups of people, right? And and look at them over there. They've accepted this by faith. And you're now you're over here trying to get this works thing going again, right? And Paul included himself there, Barnabas and really the others that were there. And John MacArthur said this about this, uh, why Paul begins with the emphasis on their Jewishness. He could say it like this, we of all people... We know the law is a way of life from the time we were born, circumcised the eighth day. We know what it is to live under the system of law. We know what it is to endeavor to gain approval. We know what it is to be restrained by certain forbidden things under the Mosaic law. We know what it is to obey the ceremonial truth, right? So Paul's main point here then is summed up by this simple truth. Even those who were born Jewish know that they could not be saved by keeping the law, right? They knew that because they'd failed over and over and over and over again, right? But only by faith in Christ. So Paul emphasizes these uh, vital theological truths in a restatement of the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, I said, alluded to this earlier, but this I know sounds redundant to us in January of 2024. But this was earth-shattering to them, right? Earth-shattering. Again, think what Luther went through, um, what, 
1400 and something years later earth shattering right and you know again for me being raised catholic earth shattering what do you mean i don't have to do anything you know i was taught well you gotta you gotta you gotta no does that seem like it cheapens it to you a little bit what do you think i mean wouldn't pardon yeah your human nature. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, Chris brought this out in Croatia and Peru. I brought it up about Peru and he brought it up about Croatia. Nothing is free. Is that right, Katie? I mean, you got to give something, right? You got to give something. And nothing's free. And God is saying, well, guess what? This is, you know. But, but, no, right? So I found this little chart that kind of illustrates it a little bit better, probably than I could say it. So um, did they all fit on there? Yeah. So look, at the question's implied. Um, did we Jews become Christians differently than the Gentiles? The answer given, even we Jews by nature are not sinners from among the Gentiles have, have be- believed in Christ Jesus. The arguments that are affirmed through that. There are not two ways of salvation, one for Jews and one for Gentiles. Everybody is saved in the same way through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what context could that come into for you and I today in the culture we live in here in Atlanta, Georgia, Woodstock, Georgia? I think of evangelism. You come across a Muslim, right, or uh, or a Jew or, you know, some other faith that's, and, and we are saying that you're only saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Think about this. So the second one, since we already had the law, why did we Jews believe in Jesus? The answer, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. And then the argument affirmed in that statement, faith in Jesus Christ justified us, declared us righteous before God, something the law did not do. And then the third one, on what doctrinal truth is faith based? Answer, knowing that man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Argument affirmed, any person, Jew or Gentile, is justified through faith in Jesus, not by works of the law. Then the last one, why is a person justified by faith and not works? Since by the works of the law, no flesh the argument, it is literally impossible for the law to justify anybody, Jew or Gentile. But, yes, sir. We focus on the Jews, and we use the term Gentiles. The Greeks were not without some type of worship in their own life. Sure, yeah, they were going after all this. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So the Jews, that probably just even added to the Jews, though, if you think about it. They think, well, we're worshiping the one true God. You guys are worshiping all these pagan idols out here. Yeah. But this came into my mind. But why or maybe how can we trust this and not our works? Why? I mean, think about that. Why can I, how can I accept this? And think about for the Jews or Martin Luther, the reformers. You're telling us to abandon the system that we have believed in, the system that we have staked our lives on, 
right? You're telling us to abandon that. What makes you so sure that that this is true? How, um, what do you think? All right. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. The scriptures, right? The Romans uh, 4. Uh, I remember that guy that, that like I said, led us to the Lord. I knew nothing. I was, I was horrified in my mind that everybody that died before Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins was in hell. All those Old Testament people, every person that ever lived in hell until year 33 when Christ died. That's what I thought. And I asked him the next week and he took me to that passage in, well, in Genesis 15, 6 in the parallel in Romans, Paul says it, right? That Abraham believed and it was what? Counted, reckoned to him as righteousness, right? So that's it. We have the scripture which we know according to itself is inspired by God, right? Meaning what? That it's God's word to us. So God is telling us in the Bible that this is the truth, right? And and so then the question arises in my mind, well, how do I know that the Bible's the truth? You know, um, I mean, really? You know, you got the Quran, you got Plato and all these other ancient writings. How do I? What do you think? What does that for you? How can you read 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, all scriptures inspired by God and it's profitable, it's good for us to teach us. How do I know that's true? You know, Paul's the one that wrote that too, right? Uh, How do I know? What can I stake? You know, I got to have that settled in my mind. I can't just have you tell me that. So what does that? What's the only internally consistent worldview? Okay. And what do you mean by internally consistent? Good, good. And and I have to accept that as what I agree 100%. And I accept that. And because this guy doesn't, I can't help that. Right? Now, I need to witness to him. I need to love him. I need to minister to him. But I can't help that he doesn't see it that way. But sometimes my mind still goes, yeah, but what if? It's not. You know, um, I think weird, you know, my wife says, just calm down and accept things, you know, but um, <clears throat> here's an added one for me. All of those I 100% agree with, you know, the 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 fact that I read uh, Josh McDowell wrote a book years ago, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and for layman people, because I can't understand the, uh, the math, um, math and me never got along. Sorry, Giselle, but she's a math teacher. Uh, you know, when they started mixing numbers and letters, you lost me. You know, one's for ad- yeah, <laughs> one of them's for adding, and the other one's for spelling. They don't go together. But uh, uh, the mathematical odds of just eight prophecies being true in one person are ten to the forty-fifth power. Now, I don't know what that means. So Josh McDowell breaks that down for us. 
And he says, it's this. If you took the state of Texas, the largest state in our country, and you covered it two feet deep in silver dollars. Okay, you got the picture? And then you take a silver dollar and paint it red on both sides. And you fly over the state of Texas in a helicopter and you randomly pitch that red silver dollar out. And then you get a bulldozer and you mix all of it up together, north to south, east to west. And then you blindfold a man, he gets one shot at picking the red silver dollar. That's 10 to the 45th power. Highly unlikely that one man would fulfill just eight prophecies. That's pretty compelling, right? And then the other thing that's very, very compelling to me is these ancient manuscripts. You can't argue with archaeology. Bare bones facts, right? They're digging stuff all the time, 24-7, and the facts are there. They've got these ancient documents that show it. Did you have something there? Yeah, good. That's right. So last question. Why did Paul want the Galatians to hear this? Remember chapter 1, verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Right? But before we say, you boneheaded Galatians, we do the same thing, right? We all need to hear this because from time to time, whether we want to admit it or not, we get off track and we think that we need to contribute some to this whole thing. But um, as Matt said, Scripture is consistent from beginning to end. And that's what you and I get to live in. And it just, is, as Paul so clearly tells us in Romans, that's not go do what you want to do. It's a drop down in humility and be crushed over the fact that he did this for us, right? That's what it does for me. So anyway, any final thoughts? The computer won't be back next week, so no worries. They won't have a lot of reading next week. So, All right, well, thank you and see you later.